listening to episode 19 of the Secret Origins Podcast, starring two legends of the Golden Age, Uncle Sam and the Guardian. to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and I'm happy to once again welcome a brand new voice to the Secret Origins Podcast. From the comments section to the big time itself, it's Jeff Nettleton. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Hi, Ryan. Thank you. No, thank you very much for being part of this. Happy to do it. (laughs) Jeff, you've been following this podcast for months, so I know that you know what Secret Origins is, but just in case anyone is listening for the first time, allow me to explain. Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics with each issue telling or retelling or reimagining the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. But I think the story we're going to cover is the first one to feature a character who is kind of created outside of comics. Sort of. Uh, We're talking about Uncle Sam, and... We definitely have the comic book version of this, but the character in itself is an idea that originates back in the 1800s. Yeah, um, the legend is that he was based on a contractor for the U.S. government during the War of 1812, Sam Wilson, although from what I've read, there's some references to an Uncle Sam even before that. Mm -hmm. But there was a man named Sam Wilson who became kind of known as Uncle Sam because he provided provisions to the U.S. Army in that period. Of course, the the newspaper usage from people like Thomas Nass and, of course, the James Montgomery flag recruiting poster. Mm -hmm. So uh, all of that sort of created this idea of a character well before he was actually conceived by uh, Will Eisner. Yeah, Will Eisner and Lou Fine was the artist on it. I know that Lou Fine is created as one of the characters, but did he just do the cover of the first appearance? Because the story was by a different artist, wasn't it? He actually did the art um, in that okay. particular one, and, and he did at least the first few issues. And I've, from some of the things I've read, it's kind of murky as to whether Eisner wrote it, plotted it, or if Fine wrote it under Eisner's byline. Because Fine was one of the guys who worked in the Eisner Iger shop and went over with him when he started up with Quality Comics, because uh, that was kind of a separate thing from the old Eisner Iger stuff. 
And Fine did a lot of the covers for quality, but he also did some of the interiors. Um, Uncle Sam was one of the big ones he did, and the other really big one was the Black Condor. Right, right. Um, he did some beautiful stuff on that. Yeah. And he ghosted the spirit while Will Eisner was in the Army during World War II. Uh, Fine had suffered from polio as a child, so I'm kind of assuming he was probably 4F. So I haven't read anything about him being in the military in any capacity. But he was doing the spirit during those years and kind of ghosting it. Um, and I it kind of got the impression he was doing some of the writing. So it may be a combination of Will Eisner plot and Lou Fine embellishing, or it may have been Will's story. I've never seen anything definitive. Hmm. Okay. Well, that uh, that leads sort of right into the publication history. Uncle Sam, the DC version at least, or what is now the DC version, debuted in National Comics number 1, which was cover dated July 1940, but would have hit newsstands on April 3rd, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. The creation of comics legend Will Eisner and artist Lou Fine, as Jeff just mentioned, Uncle Sam headlined Quality Comics National Series until the end of 1944. He appeared on most of National's covers, many of which were drawn by Fine before Reed Crandall took over. During his time at Quality Comics, Uncle Sam spun off into Uncle Sam Quarterly, which only lasted eight issues, published between 1941 and 43. After National Comics 45 came out in October of 1944, Uncle Sam was one of the first comic book heroes to suffer from ageism. According to Roy Thomas, Uncle Sam faded into obscurity while younger, more virile patriotic heroes like Captain America hung around for a couple more years. After an absence of nearly 30 years, Uncle Sam finally returned in the pages of Justice League of America issues 107 and 108. Len Wein made Uncle and a handful of other heroes that DC had acquired from quality the Freedom Fighters of an alternate universe called Earth-X. In the mid-70s, Uncle Sam starred in the bi-monthly Freedom Fighters comic, which ran for 15 issues. After that, Uncle Sam disappeared again, this time only for a couple years before Roy Thomas brought the character back in All-Star Squadron issue 31. After Crisis on Infinite Earths, Uncle Sam made occasional appearances in various DC Comics, most notably two different eight-issue miniseries titled Uncle Sam and the Freedom Fighters, published in 2006 and 2008, and another eight-issue series just called Freedom Fighters that came out in 2011, just before the line-wide shakeup of the New 52. Since then, I know he has appeared in some of the New 52 miniseries like Phantom Lady and The Human Bomb. I know he was in the Convergence series, but I really have zero interest in the new version of Uncle Sam, and it's not because they changed his race. If you didn't know, the New 52 Uncle Sam was a black man, but my disinterest is mostly because they're so obviously trying to capture the movie version of Nick Fury. Uh, the new Uncle Sam is the head of Homeland Security or something. He wears a black suit with a flag pin. He's an administrator. He assembles the Freedom Fighters. And that's not who Uncle Sam is, I don't think. Uncle Sam is a man of action. He rolls up his sleeves and fights. Um, have you seen the new version of the character? Uh, no, I haven't, and I'm thankful based on that description. <laughs> I'm going to go into grumpy old man mode here for a minute. I really hate when they mess with a concept like that and just do something just badly derivative or whatever is a hot trend. I mean, this is a character that that goes back for generations just in comics, and that kind of legacy is something that you can do a lot of stuff with, but that doesn't seem to be the mindset at DC anymore. 
and that's kind of why I haven't I haven't picked up a DC comic in I don't know how long, <laughs> other than the odd trade paperback here or there, and it's been very rare in recent years. How did you first discover Uncle Sam? What is your history with this character? Uh, my first, in terms of the comic book version, would be the Freedom Fighters comic series. I remember seeing there was a house ad for around issue, I think it's number nine, that featured a a patriotic-looking hero on the cover pointing to wanted posters of the Freedom Fighters. And this guy sort of looks like Captain America, except for the color scheme's all wrong. And that actually was a uh, an unofficial crossover between the Freedom Fighters and Marvel's Invaders. Um, for those who aren't aware of it, the Invaders comic was out around the same time, and Roy Thomas did a storyline where a group called the Crusaders turns up in the Invaders comic, and they were based on the quality comics heroes. Meanwhile, at DC, their version had the Freedom Fighters running up against a group that was, um, I forget what they actually called them, I think they called them the Crusaders, but it was led by uh, the Americommando, who basically is Captain America, except for where Captain America's costume was blue, they made it red, they gave them the circular stars rather than the one, and, and so on and so on. I didn't actually read that story, but I remembered that image beautifully. And when I finally saw a Freedom Fighters comic, I grabbed it. And that was issue 14. So my intro, really, to the character were the last two issues of that series. (laughs) And it was supposed to continue in Secret Society of Supervillains, but then that got canceled as part of the DC implosion. So they kind of went away really abruptly. And it was a while before I saw more of that character. But it was always one I gravitated towards. I actually then kind of found the um, the Justice League story after the fact and read that and just loved the heck out of it. When I read that, I, I loved the concept, and I, I still go back. Crisis on Infinite Earths did a lot of great things for the DC Universe, but I'm still always going to prefer that idea of the multiverse. Um, I like... I don't like condensing all of these guys on the same timeline, and I like that idea of of the quality heroes of Uncle Sam and the Freedom Fighters being on that parallel Earth where they're the ones. Um, and I like that idea of, like, of America being, you know, on the losing end of them, like, having to fight as the underdogs and what he represents because the character is a sort of a revolutionary figure. So yeah. I think he works best when America's back is up against the wall, and I think you kind of always need that feeling for him to be meaningful, for him to be inspirational and relevant, I think you yeah. need to cast him in a sort of wartime scenario. Yeah, I totally agree with that. To me, he works... He and characters kind of like the, the Phantom Stranger and the Spectre, I always preferred them as motivators for everybody else rather being the one who's in direct action because their powers always seem to be so great that mm-hmm. they seem to be better when they're inspiring or they're motivating somebody else to take care of the situation. Mm-hmm. And Uncle and, Sam definitely fit into that mode well. Um, yeah, and we see it in this this origin too. Like his his power set, his whole character, it is it's a little bit ghostly, it's a little bit mystical. Um, yeah. It certainly it doesn't necessarily have the supernatural horror bent that characters like the Spectre or the Phantom Stranger. But he still kind of has that kind of nebulous almost magic type of quality to him. Yeah, it's like um, it's like he's the the collective embodiment of 
the, as they say, the American spirit or the American people, kind of like the way, like Neil Gaiman wrote in American Gods, those figures were strongest when they had more believers. Right. And over time, as people moved on and away from them, they became these figures. And and Uncle Sam is very much like that in the comics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think that again goes back to the idea of like. I mean, in wartime, that's when nationalism is strongest, generally. Um, so I think that that plays into people's patriotism and their collective spirit and their their hopes and the righteousness and the feelings. So I think that that does, on a, on a story level, it makes the character stronger. On a kind of meta level, it makes the character relevant and popular. So yeah, and certainly, and when you look at some of the the early. Uncle Sam comics that uh, Eisner and Fine did at Quality, you'd be amazed to read some of them compared to the stories that would be done now in a patriotic theme. They're almost, you know, very liberal mm-hmm. uh, in point of view, which, given Will Eisner is an unabashed liberal, it has, it's much like those early Siegel and Schuster Supermans. There's a lot of social crusading going on in them. Mm-hmm. There's at least one story that revolved around... Um, protecting striking workers from scabs and union busters. There's a, so it's, it's a very much of a New Deal era patriotism. Folks, we're going to take a quick promotional break, and when we come back, we're going to hear the origin of Uncle Sam. Who here likes comic books? Who likes superheroes? Who likes superhero comic books? From the 90s! That's what I thought. Hey there, I'm Nathaniel Wayne from the Council of Geeks, and though I've always loved superheroes, the only time I was buying monthly issues was during the much maligned 1990s. I've decided to go through my personal collection, issue by issue, and in my own little way, try to answer the question, were 90s comics really that bad? Chances are the answer will be yes, but I think these books deserve another chance, and they're going to get it on 90s Comics Retrial, part of the Council of Geeks podcast, available on iTunes and at 90scomicsretrial.wordpress.com. about destruction Don't you know that you can count me out Don't you know it's gonna be Alright 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 Welcome back Secret Origins, issue 19, was cover dated October of 1987. The actual on-sale date was July 7th that year, which I think is really cool that the issue would have come out right around 4th of July, given the patriotic nature of its lead hero. The cover to issue 19 features Jack Kirby's creation, The Guardian, bursting out of an Uncle Sam Wants You poster. 
Kirby penciled the Guardian figure, while Murphy Anderson did the Uncle Sam image and the inks. What do you think about this cover, Jeff? I don't know. I like elements of it, but, um, I mean, obviously the focus is definitely on the Guardian, which I suspect that was Roy Thomas's favorite of the two. Um, it's a little odd that uh, Uncle Sam's focus seems to be off to the left rather than directly, which is, is something that kind of stands out. It's it's a very dynamic cover. Um, the, the styles clash a little bit. Murphy Anderson's got more of that classical illustrator look, and, of course, Kirby is Kirby. And right. this is definitely later era Kirby. Um, I'm not too cool about the, the Guardian logo. I've never thought a whole lot of that. The Uncle Sam one... You know, is what you would expect, the typical red, white, and blue thing. It it kind of fades a little bit into the Uncle Sam's hat there. It kind of, the overlay of that didn't work very well. But otherwise, you know, I kind of like the idea of it. I do too. I, I like the idea a little bit more than the execution. Yeah, um, that's definitely uh, what I would say there. Um, the, you definitely had the idea of the Guardian bursting through the Uncle Sam poster, but it just doesn't quite come off. No, I know that Roy Thomas really badly wanted Jack Kirby to do the Guardian story, and it just wasn't possible, so he had Kirby contribute this part of the, the cover image. But they're so radically different uh, in style, and it's a little bit jarring, although I still I like that idea, and I didn't even really think about like I, I For some reason, as often as I've looked at this poster, I've really never looked at the names or the titles, and you're right, that Guardian one is not impressive. Um, and the Uncle Sam one does kind of get lost in his hat. Like, the, the stripes pattern kind of bleed together. So Yeah, if the image was just a little lower mm-hmm. from the, the banner, it would have been fine. It's just that with the overlay of it, it just doesn't quite work. Yeah. That Guardian one, I've, the lettering's trying to emulate the Guardian shield, and it's just such a weird shape that it kind of makes it kind of hard to read. Right. I noticed, and I, I kind of like the fact that uh, the the wants you part and the lower the lower text is yeah. actually it's it's addressing a plural form. It's want you because it's Uncle Sam and Guardian want you. Um, so they didn't just copy that exactly. But. Yeah, I think that's probably Roy Thomas's uh, school teacher background coming through there. <laughs> okay, well, Jeff, are you ready to tell our listeners the origin of Uncle Sam? I'm all set. The story is The Coming of Uncle Sam, written by Len Wein, uh, artist Murphy Anderson, letterer Milt Snappen, Shelley Iber is the colorist, and Roy Thomas and Greg Wiseman are editors, although, as we have heard, Greg Wiseman probably didn't do a whole lot of anything but say, yeah, Roy, whatever you want. Um, Our story opens with Uncle Sam and some kid rolling up their sleeves, getting ready to kick some Nazi keister. The opening text introduces us to Uncle Sam. Here he comes, as young as the Liberty Bell, as old as the concept of freedom, the living embodiment of the American dream. He is your uncle, my uncle, the uncle of those who fight for freedom everywhere. He is Uncle Sam, America's premier hero. Which, you gotta have that emphasis. Gotta love those 1940s style openings. (laughs) We flash back to 1777, the heart of the Revolutionary War. We see colonial troops facing off against British redcoats. They cross an open field, firing behind fences and rocks, followed by images of a wagon train in the Pennsylvania woods on its way to Valley Forge. It's being pursued by Hessian soldiers, because, of course, they're German, and we've got a link to the Nazis. So, you know, we've got to set up the future. While taking a break, a wagon master named Samuel 
conveniently, recounts the importance of the supplies they carry. If they don't make it through, Washington's troops are can't survive the winter. Another driver asks what they can do. Sam says they need to create a distraction to lead the Hessians on a wild goose chase. The men can see the wisdom of the plan and are prepared to draw straws, although I kind of doubt they weren't that enthusiastic. They know it's suicidal. Sam says, forget it, boys. This was my idea, so it's, I'm the one to go. The men think it's certain death, but Sam says he'll be protected, wrapped in the stars and stripes. Sucker. Sam goes off to distract the Hessians while the wagons head out. He draws their attention and gets them to chase after him. Sam runs waving the flag while the dumbfounded German mercenaries give chase and fire after him because, of course, professional soldiers would rather chase one guy than a wagon train of supplies. Sam thinks that nothing else matters except the making of America, just as he is struck down by a musket ball. Sam lays there dying, draped dramatically over the new flag of the new nation. The Hessians catch up and can't understand why he did it. Meanwhile, the wagons arrive at Valley Forge just as winter is setting in. As Sam is slowly dying, he sees the last rays of the setting sun form red stripes, creating a vision of the flag, letting him know that he has won. Either that or else that Japan is going to factor into America's future. Uh, he is met by Uncle Sam, who tells him that his sacrifice and those of many others will help create a nation. Samuel sees that Uncle Sam looks just like him, and Uncle Sam tells Sam that Uncle Sam is the spirit of America and offers him an eternity of fighting to defend America, which Sam accepts. The two beings merge into one mighty figure, and Uncle Sam is truly born. We next see Sam aboard an American warship during the War of 1812, uh, but apparently he skipped the Battle of New Orleans since it took place after the war. He is there as brother fights brother in the Civil War, but apparently America did need his help in the Mexican War. Uh, he's finally able to smile as Lee surrenders to Grant, bringing an end to the endless slaughter. In 1898, he rides up San Juan Hill with Teddy Roosevelt, helping to create a new American empire. I mean, uh, freeing Cuban revolutionaries from Spanish tyranny and selling a lot of papers for William Randolph Hearst. He is there as American doughboys show up late to World War I, but win it single-handedly, or so my high school textbook said. After peace comes, Sam takes a well-deserved rest, but the world itself doesn't rest. Adolf Hitler rises to power in Germany and starts yelling about thousand-year rights, and the noise is loud enough that it wakes up our slumbering Sam. He recognizes the danger that this funny little man represents and knows that something needs to be done about him. Uncle Sam goes off in search of the right vessel and finds it in a little Midwestern town called Glen Valley, the typical small town with a general store, which happens to be owned by a guy named Sam. The white-bearded proprietor of the store is sitting there debating the Nazis and a local Bund uh, with a group of locals. The locals fear the power of this group, the Black Legion, but Sam scoffs at him and says that he isn't afraid and to bring him on. Uncle Sam has found his patsy, I mean vessel. Later at Sam's home, he enters to find Uncle Sam sitting there, who says that Sam, the proprietor, possesses the spirit needed to win the fight and offers his power and invincibility to Sam to take the fight to the Black Legion and beyond. Sam agrees, and then he sees that if he trimmed his beard, he would look just like Uncle Sam, or Colonel Sanders. The next day, Sam is walking through the streets of Glen Valley, his beard trimmed into goatee, wearing the clothes of Uncle Sam, and looking a few pounds thinner, too. At first, his neighbors think he's gone crazy, then people start commenting about how young he looks. They ask if he's going to a parade, and he responds that he's going off to lead the nation to better days as he heads off. People still wonder if he's nuts, but they actually kind of hope that he can pull it off. That night, there is a rally, 
wise old Ezra Smith speaks out against the Black Legion and the slavery that fascism offers. He draws the attention of members of the Black Legion. That night, Ezra was with his grandson, Buddy, the kid from page one, and he tells him that despite being old and tired, someone needs to speak up for freedom. Meanwhile, members of the Black Legion enter into the tent, looking somewhat like extras from Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator. They draw a gun on Ezra to shut him up. Ezra fights in his shot, while a fire breaks out in his tent. Buddy runs off to find help, but there's no one to be found. He sits down on a rock to cry, and is sitting there, when suddenly he hears somebody whistling Yankee Doodle. Along comes George M. Cohen, uh, wait a minute, no, that's Uncle Sam, who asks why he's crying and tell him about it. He tells Buddy that he is everyone's uncle and that the principles of freedom are worth fighting for. So stop acting like some sniveling commie and wipe your nose, Dagnabbit. Meanwhile, the dirty ratsies of the Black Legion have snuck up and dropped a boulder on Uncle Sam, which splits into two as it hits his head. Sam picks up his hat and pops it back into shape, then chases after the fleeing ratsy, who knows that Sam is about to fix him. The coward says that he didn't mean to do it, when Buddy lays into him, open a can of American whoop-ass for killing his grandfather, and to show that he's not some sniveling little commie. Sam and Buddy head off to stop the Black Legion once and for all. Meanwhile, the Black Legion is gathered at a remote farmhouse where they have tanks and what appears to be M16s and M60s, which didn't appear until Vietnam, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> they reveal that they have been equipped by their masters overseas, including uh, M60 battle tanks, but, no, whatever. And are about to teach the people of Glen Valley a lesson. Soon they launch their blitzkrieg upon the town. The people flee in terror when the leader of the Legion, a man named Scar, conveniently, Remarks that today Glen Valley, tomorrow Keokuk, or America, or, you know, whatever. That is, until the path is blocked by Uncle Sam and Buddy. Sam gives them a chance to turn around and go home, but they ignore him and attack. Sam catches the artillery projectiles as they're fired and then throws them back at the tanks, saying he learned a thing or two from a man named Baugh, Sammy Baugh, better known as Slingin' Sammy Baugh, two-time All-American and quarterback for the Washington Redskins, and the star of the King of the Texas Rangers. Sam and Buddy continue to take the fight to the Legion, taking names, kicking butt, and bending machine gun barrels. The townspeople see Sam and Buddy fighting the Ratsies and are inspired to pick up weapons and start fighting back, finally. Soon, the tide turns against the Legion. Scar tries to flee in his tank, but Sam is chasing after him with giant strides. And tanks don't really move that fast. He catches the tank, lifts it straight up in the air, and then turns it upside down and shakes Scar out. He drags him back to the townspeople and tell them to see the American spirit in action, and then hands him over for them to dish out some American justice, probably with a rope. <laughs> Buddy says to Sam, Heck, Uncle Sam, you're the real spirit of America. Sam replies, Shuck, son, I ain't nothing except what you folks make me. And he thanks for him and says, But come to think of it, that makes me pretty great. The flag flutters in the background, and we are told that it was the only the beginning, and we hear the chants of USA, USA, USA. <laughs> Thank you for recapping the story. Uh, I, I had to comment because my first note this just jumped out, and you, you definitely alluded to it in your recap. On page four, the top panel, when Sam is dying and he kind of sees the sunset with the red and white stripes. I looked yeah. at that too, and I was like, is that the Japanese rising sun? Yeah, pretty much. Like, I mean, that was... I, I, don't, I don't think the symbol they're trying to capture is adequately conveyed in that image. Yeah, I mean, they do kind of have a, a blue overlay around the fringes, but it doesn't quite work. No, no it doesn't. Okay, uh, Jeff, what did you think of this story? 
I love the heck out of it. It's cornball is all get out, but it's a lot of fun. That was my first thought too when I read this, and I read this like twice, like back to back. The first time I saw it, I was like, "Am I reading this? This is so weird." But yeah, it's just a fun story. Yeah, I mean, it follows the original pretty closely. I mean, it mostly follows. There were really two versions of Uncle Sam's origin and quality. The first issue of National Comics presents the basic plot with the Black Legion, although they're called the Purple Shirts, mm-hmm. except they uh, they try to kidnap, uh, well, actually do kidnap FDR, and Sam and Buddy have to rescue him. But issue five kind of represented the origin, and they had more of this version of it with Samuel and the Revolutionary War and on up through and embellishing with them attacking the town. However, Murphy Anderson is definitely the one who added the little double X symbol that he swiped from Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator mm-hmm. on the Black Legion's uniforms rather than giving him a swastika. But uh, it, it follows along pretty well, and it's definitely got that kind of feel to it. Len Wein definitely is channeling um, Will Eisner here. It, it sounds a lot like the way Eisner wrote stories in that era. Mm-hmm. And, and Wein kind of could do that kind of stuff very well. His, his use of Sam in Justice League was very much along these kind of lines. Right, and Len Wein was an unabashed fan of this character. He loved the character. He begged Roy Thomas to let him write this secret origin, um, which is why this is, I think, according to Roy Thomas's own notes, this is the only one of like the sort of golden age origin stories that Roy really didn't have a hand in telling the story. He was the editor on it, but uh, like it, it all of the others he either wrote or co-wrote or had some sort of like consulting assist on the story. Yeah, he um, says he says on the, uh, the little note on the letters page that he was a big fan of the way that Len Wein wrote mm-hmm. Uncle Sam in those Justice League stories. Yeah, you you mentioned that the story is kind of compiling two different tales from National Comics. It's from National Comics number one and number five. This origin actually presents them in a more sort of linear chronological fashion. Um, yeah. But the the story from National Number 1 is actually the second half of this origin story. That's the one where it, it starts with this Ezra Smith guy speaking up against the Black yeah. Legion, and they, they, you know, they take him out, and then we see, uh, we see Uncle Sam meeting Buddy, who I don't remember having that big of a part in the story. Was Buddy even in that original story? Yeah, he's in it, um... In fact, he is pretty much a sidekick for Uncle Sam through the National Comic Stories. Which was fun. I mean, he, it sort of predates Captain America and Bucky by a couple months. Yeah. And, well, of course, you still, you've got Robin. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not so, saying I mean, he was the first kid sidekick, sidekick. But, but for being, like, the, uh, the, the teen sidekick for a, a patriotic hero, yeah. especially. Well, and the, the S.H.I.E.L.D. who predated Captain America had... Uh, Dusty the Boy Detective. Oh, that's right. So, uh, Simon and Kirby weren't exactly uh, pioneering on that book. No. Yeah. Although they did it better. True. Yeah, so we get back to what would have been the story in in National Number 5, kind of sees uh-huh. the this revolutionary war story, which I, I love. And this, this is something that I mentioned uh, when we covered the Spectre origin. I'm, I'm always fascinated by stories where the main character is essentially killed and through one means or another kind of comes back as as a as a hero or is in this case sort of like the spirit kind of the spirit of Samuel i don't know if if it's like cuz this makes it look like the spirit of america all, always existed and 
maybe it just sort of like manifests itself when this Samuel guy is killed by the Hessians, like saving General Washington's forces. Yeah, I can see that. Um, it does kind of feel like like there is a burgeoning spirit to America, and that in Samuel's actions, it finds a focus. Yeah. And so then when the two combine, he becomes the true spirit of America and that will build you know, into its promised future or promising future. Which, I'll be honest, it did create some confusion in me Like when I was reading this. I was like, because like later on when we see the same thing happen, when, essentially when he meets this Samuel in the town yeah. and he approaches him and it, he's sort of like, I will give you the strength and the spirit like basically kind of – embodies this guy and makes him the sort of new Uncle Sam by giving him these powers, sort of. But then, like, the way the way Samuel starts talking to Buddy and the way he's behaving really feels like this spirit of America, this Uncle Sam kind of idea that we see early on. And it's how much of the original guy is still there? Like, did he just possess him or did he take him over? Like, they're just, like I, I was struggling to figure out who exactly is this character's identity. Yeah, that is kind of an, an element of it. I think it kind of goes back to that, that Golden Age style of storytelling that they didn't really delve a lot into personality right. in most cases. Now, Will Eisner Will Eisner wrote a darn good story, but he, he didn't focus that much. I mean, Denny Colt in the spirit didn't really have a lot of personality right. in any individual story. It just kind of grew over time, but it was still kind of a, a snapshot more than anything else. Right. And part so, of that, part of that, just the nature of the time that they were writing, they weren't thinking about continuity. These yeah, weren't character yeah. sketches. They weren't character pieces. They were plot beats um, because they weren't expecting readers to be sticking with the book for two years. Yeah, and so I think that's one of the problems with a, a modern story in that you're kind of expecting, well, what about the person he took over? But, you know, Len Wein is kind of an old school, and the the, the purpose of this is just to present the origin. So I guess they decided... They didn't want to delve onto it, but yeah, you do kind of wonder. I kind of skim through those later Uncle Sam, the Freedom Fighter kind of things, and they, they kind of hinted that he, he took in other people as his vessel. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it is one of those things where you, you just kind of get the feeling that, well, Uncle Sam takes him over, he just becomes Uncle Sam, and whatever existed before goes away. Right. I like the the conceit, like the this kernel of the story where he's, he's fighting Bundus, he's fighting basically American, like, Nazi sleeper cells. Yeah. Um, it really works. I kind of like the, the original Golden Age story where, what were they called, like, the purple masks or something? The, or they just, the purple shirts, yeah. The purple shirts, yeah. They just kind of had, like, a, a simple, like, masked look. I think when you, when they, I mean, Murphy Anderson's art is phenomenal, and I love the character designs, but when you see them dressed this overtly like Nazis, even though they're not wearing the actual symbol, but they've got this army of tanks and machine guns that you pointed out are a little bit anachronistic for the time, but just, how how did they get all of this gear into the American heartland? Yeah, it's, those are the kind of things, and it is, that is there in the, the, the the two early stories, although, then um, of course, that was a big thing on uh, a lot of those 1940s covers. You had, like, these secret invasions, and mm-hmm. you know, pulp novels like the uh, Operator 5 were built upon secret invasions of America and that kind of thing. So, But yeah, you, you kind of wonder, how the heck do you get all that gear into the U.S. without somebody noticing something? <laughs> Especially in the middle of the Midwest. Right. It's quiet house. They would notice something like that. Like you're probably going to hear yeah, a tank rolling up your cornfield. 
yeah, or else, you know, I think, you know, Fred got a new tractor, and that's a big one. <laughs> but still, I mean, as loud as perhaps nonsensical as it is, I do love the climax of the story. I love the idea that he's standing up, that he's fight, that he's able to just catch these tank artillery shells yeah. and just kind of like throw them underneath his arm, like you said, just like a football player, just wail them back at the at the tanks and take them out. I love that he's fighting. I love, even though it's silly, the fact that Buddy is getting his shots and he's like punching these guys in the kneecaps. Yeah. And then he he does it again. It's it's the spirit of revolution that he he stands up and he becomes a symbol and the people of this town pick up their rakes and their hammers and they, they start fighting for their own liberty. Yeah. Yeah. And that, like I said, that's, that's where, where he works best. He, mm-hmm. he comes in, he kind of, you know, does a little rabble rousing, gets everybody all riled up and then they go to it. It makes for just a great little story. Yeah. And I think for this kind of story to continue, if, if this was going to be a regular, like a monthly series, Again, I come back to I think that works best in like an Earth X situation where America has been taken over, where you can have this grassroots kind of revolution and reclaiming the nation kind of one step at a time, little by little. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that was kind of the the way they went with the 1970s Freedom Fighter mm-hmm. series. Yeah. When they come to Earth 1 they are framed as being criminals, so they're always kind of uh, wanted people. So there's still that element of being a fugitive and fighting for, in that case, to prove their innocence, but always fighting against odds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've never read that series. I really want to. I want to read anything that has more Phantom Lady. But <laughs> it's um, I will caution that that seventies one has got some nice ideas, but the execution wasn't the greatest, which is part of why it didn't stick around that long. The art kind of fluctuated a bit, and they changed writers two or three times, so that kind of unofficial crossover of the Invaders is definitely the high point of the series. And the last two issues do feature a crossover with uh, Batgirl and Batwoman, the original Kathy Kane, and that's a pretty decent story. It's kind of towards the end, they were kind of getting... A handle on it, and then the the rug got pulled out. Uh, before we were kind of recording this, uh, we were talking about this a little bit, and I'm always kind of fascinated by this because you were a service member. You served in the yes. Navy. You said for four years. Yes. And you also said that you've always been sort of a fan of the patriotic type of heroes when they're written well. And I'm just kind of curious. And this, even as I'm saying this, I know this sounds like a dumb question, but. Is there a connection between the two? And I bring this up because I, I have a friend who's a former Marine, mm-hmm. and he only reads G.I. Joe or war comics. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well, I'm sure that's just that's not the case for every Marine or every enlisted man or woman. I'm sure they read everything. But I'm always just sort of fascinated about the, the tastes of people who've been in the service, especially because I haven't been, and how they sort of gravitate to more nationalistic and patriotic or military-style stories in comics. Is there a connection, or is it just... There, there's definitely a connection in general. Um, my tastes are a little more eclectic. I mean, I was, I was a fan of comic books, period, from the moment I first encountered them. I probably started reading them. When I was around four years old, um, you know, stuff like funny animal comics like Super Goof uh, with Disney's Goofy as a superhero and things like that. And any comic I got my hands on, I read. So I read everything from the Gold Key stuff to uh, 
things like the the Christian Spire comics that Archie used to to distribute, even though I wasn't that deeply religious. It was just it was a comic book. Yeah. Um, so for me, I read everything. But yeah, I always did have a big attraction to the war comics, um, particularly the DC ones uh, with you know, Joe Kubert and the Robert Kaniger stories and Russ Heath and that whole group of writers and artists they had, um, you know, books like The Unknown Soldier and Sergeant Rock, The Haunted Tank. I mean, I've always felt that DC is really missing the boat by not doing like a big maxi series covering the history of World War II with those characters, taking it from 1939 to 1945. But, you know, if they want to do that, they know where to contact me and uh, we'll plot that story out. But um, there was definitely an attraction to me. I was always I always had a fascination with the military, and so military comics, military movies, and I was a kid of the '70s, so a lot of the movies I saw on TV were from the '60s, and that was a big era for World War II movies. Mm-hmm. So I was always kind of grounded in that. Most of the people I met in the service had similar backgrounds, at least those who were really overtly kind of had a patriotic connection to it. You know, there are a lot of people who join the service because it's an economic way to to get out of a depressed area or it's a way to escape a not-so-great home life or whatever the case may be. But there's always a strong feeling, at least those who who stick with it, there's kind of a feeling of a connection to, to something bigger than yourself. And these kind of comics and these kind of patriotic heroes kind of embody that. Captain America especially, but Uncle Sam does it in a broader sense. And you, you just kind of, it talks about the, the best principles and the best features of the American ideal, which, you know, does ignore a lot of the reality of the situation, but you always have that aspiration towards something better, which was one of the interesting things of, well, one of the few Uncle Sam things you, you didn't mention was the Vertigo series from Steve Darnall and Alex Ross. which um, kind of turns the tables on the whole idea of Uncle Sam as an American spirit because it presents Uncle Sam as a a homeless guy who's showing how America's been beaten down by self-interest, by cynicism and greed. It it kind of explores the negative aspects of American history to the point that a lot of people felt like it just kind of wallowed in everything nasty that happened in America. But... At the same time, it has a very optimistic ending is that despite all that, you can still aspire to what America should be. And I think that kind of gets lost in some of the criticism of it. And for me, that's kind of what patriotic heroes have always represented, at least when they're done well, is they always represent the best ideals, always striving to get beyond the more cynical, the, the negative aspects. They're always trying to make things better, generally for the common good. And so those kind of characters kind of work very well no matter what your political beliefs are because you can kind of read your own politics into them depending on how subtle your writer is. I mean, some of them are pretty blatant and hit you over the head with their point of view. Yeah, I think part of the the era, of course, that I grew up in when I was getting into comics, I mean, born in the early 80s, I loved G.I. Joe. That was my jam for a decade but I was even still I, like I, I love them, and they it, it, like I don't know the the sense of the appreciation of the military and the army and everything. It felt very pure. I didn't have 
I didn't feel any I, like I wasn't aware of like the backlash that came after Vietnam and Watergate. And by the time I was old enough to really think about it, the Cold War wasn't even really a thing. Um, and then by the time I got to the 90s, when I really started diving into comics and everything, everything about the 90s pop culture that I was growing up in, like the music was grunge rock or hip-hop, the movies were all like low-budget independence, and there was just it just felt like a more cynical time, a cynical era. So oh. I didn't... I, I kind of rejected a lot of the inspirational and aspirational heroes. Like Captain America, I thought was lame. Superman, I thought was lame. I wanted the, I wanted characters more like the Punisher, even though I was never really a big Punisher. But I liked, I liked those, you know, like anti-heroes. Um, and it kind of took me another decade to sort of, you know, kind of look back and see what was special about those guys. And now those are some of my favorites. Like I said, I go back to when I was doing. Um, Secret Origins what was it, issue eight that had the Star Spangled Kid and Stripesy, yeah. and even though there are a lot of problems with that story, I still really liked it. And it's just something about the nature of those characters and and what they represented for that era in the Golden Age. And yeah, when I look back, there there is a purity of characters like Uncle Sam and Captain America, and and some of them have been able to resonate and translate across the decades better than others. Yeah. Um, but I, I think there is a, a good place for Uncle Sam and, and where he belongs and what he can, the message that he can convey. And I think you need to get beyond sort of that cynicism the, of what the, the Vertigo would story, story would tell. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, for me, I, growing up in the, in the 70s, when I was a, a young kid, I mean, Vietnam was still going on. There was still kind of that that mindset of, you know, this is a great country, you know, we we won World War II, we fight the good fight and all that, but there was more and more of that creeping in. As I, or at least I was recognizing it as I got older. And then, you know, Watergate occurs, and then the 70s became a very cynical time. It seems you go from movies with a lot of, you know, us fighting the bad guys into um, we're kind of the bad guys. Mm-hmm and anti-heroes and that kind of thing. And that kind of progresses through a lot of 70s cinema, a lot of the books you had, a lot of um, the Pulp Fiction of that era are the, the Ben's Adventure things like The Executioner and The Destroyer and, mm-hmm. and those kinds of uh, anti-heroes and the Death Wish movies and Dirty Harry and that kind of thing. And the 80s with the Reagan era kind of revitalized that patriotism, but more in kind of a, a sleek corporate kind of point of view. Right. Whereas when you look at like the 1940s patriotism, it's more, it feels more pure because there's a definite enemy that they're facing. It's Nazism, fascism, it's Hitler, it's, it's people out conquering people and murdering them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's something you can grasp versus the murkier conflicts that we've been involved with since then. Right. I mean, one of, one of the connections of being in the service is that it's a brotherhood. It becomes like a family. Your first loyalty are to, and as we would say, our shipmates um, before anything else. And that, that it trumped patriotism, it trumped orders or whatever. You did whatever it took to keep you and your shipmates alive and going if you were in a, a, you know, a dangerous situation. But at the same time, you were kind of united beyond that into a sense of service in many cases. And that's one of the things with the patriotic heroes, too, is that some of them 
could be used then to explore some of the cynicism and kind of give a kind of light in the darkness kind of thing, like um, what Steve Englehart did with uh, Captain America when he gives up being Captain America in the face of a pseudo-Watergate mm-hmm. and becomes nomad, but then a, a young man who takes up the Captain America identity and is killed you know, makes him understand that this is your role. You're here to re- represent the best of America, regardless of how bad it might be at the time. That's one of those things that always kind of shown through for me. I grew up with those kind of more innocent heroes, those more inspirational. I mean, Batman in that period wasn't quite as dark as Frank Miller and company made him later. He, he joked once in a while, not as bad as the Adam West TV series, but he would smile once in a while. Yeah. And that's that's kind of the thing that, uh, why I kind of drift away from a lot of stuff in later years is like, I kind of missed the fun of it versus, well, everything's got to be dark and cynical and adult and and dramatic and, and all that. And I'm like, well, can't it be fun once in a while? I think a lot of times they confuse maturity and sophistication with a level of gratuitous violence and misery. Yeah, and yeah I mean, I'm, I I love a good story. Like a, an Alan Moore story can be dark and cynical, but mm. there's always kind of a purpose going through it. It's not just, not always anyway, not just violence for the sake of violence. There's a key dramatic reason things occur, not just, well, okay, I'm going to make this look really dramatic and have, you know, body exploding or something like that. Right. Uh, let's kind of get back to sure. uh, Uncle Sam before we wrap up. Were there any major story arcs or storylines or comics with the character that you would recommend for new readers who want to know more about him? Um, the uh, Definitely the Justice League stories, the two issues, 107 108, which can be found in Crisis on Multiple Earths, Volume 3. And that actually, for my money, has some of the better team-ups of that era. Len Wein was a darn good writer of the Justice League in that era. Um, it's not the most heralded era of it, but um, that particular story is a great one. The The original Freedom Fighter series has never been collected. Um, you can find the issues, although I I used to think for cheap, but then I took a look online here recently, and I'm like, seriously, who's paying 20 bucks for that series? <laughs> uh, but you can probably find them a bit cheaper than that if you want to look. Like I said, the later issues are probably the better ones. I'm not much of a fan of the later stuff from the more recent era, but there are those two trade paperbacks with the Uncle Sam and the Freedom Fighters. There was a collection of Lou Fine stuff done by Greg Theakston and his Pure Imagination Company. It was called the Lou Fine Comics Treasury. Okay. Um, it's out of print, but you can find it online for around 20 bucks. Um, it's got, in black and white, reprints of several Lou Fine comics from Quality and a couple other publishers that the Eisner Iger shop produced. And there's some great stuff to look at. I think there's at least one Uncle Sam story in it. Um, and certainly a couple of cover reproductions. There's some Black Condor in it. And his Black Condor is just beautiful to look at. He really drew the joy of flight with that character. Mm-hmm. Pure Imagination also did something called the Will Eisner Shop, which looked at Eis- the Eisner Iger uh, studio. And I think there's some Uncle Sam stuff in it. There's the Quality Comics Companion for Tomorrow that has a really nice look at both Quality Comics and those characters the, that make up the Freedom Fighters later on. But of pure collections, your best bet really 
is uh, the Digital Comics Museum online yeah. has uh, a lot of the quality stuff, including a good chunk of the National Comics with Uncle Sam. So that's your best bet for reading it. I was reading some of those just earlier today before we recorded. I was like, I gotta go back and reread this guy's first appearance so I can compare. And so, aside from that, the Vertigo series was also um, collected. Although, again, that's that's a pretty cynical story and definitely not of this nature. I I haven't read the the recent miniseries. Um, I know they were written by Justin Gray and Jimmy Palmiotti, who I generally like. I think they're a great writing team. Um, but there was just something about I, I also I like Daniel Acuna's art, but something about the way he portrayed the freedom fighters and Uncle Sam just turned me off. I was like, that's that's really not the kind of depiction that I want of those characters. But I don't know. Maybe some of our listeners have read those series and they have a, a different appreciation for them. But. Yeah, I kind of glanced through them a bit. Um, I you know I used to be a bookseller, so we had some of those collections uh, with the DC trades would come through. Certainly, the art is, is is pretty good for the modern sensibilities. Um, the story had some intriguing ideas. I just kind of it was a little too pop culturally for my taste. Right. Uh, but I'm definitely not the target audience. I'm I'm a lot older than what they were aiming for. Yeah. yeah. So it's you know it, it's one of those I would say probably best to sample it and decide for yourself kind of things. All right, Jeff. Well, as we wrap up, do you have any final thoughts on Uncle Sam? Great character. Again, as an inspirational figure, he's awesome. And this particular issue, Murphy Anderson is really channeling his Lou Fine. That, that first page um, is just straight out of the Lou Fine playbook. Oh, yeah. You can tell he was a massive fan of, of the man and his work. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you very much for being on this episode of the Secret Origins Podcast. You will be returning in the future, and I'm very happy about that. So thanks for being part of the show. Well, thank you, Ryan, and thank you for the chance to do this. This was a lot of fun. All right. Listeners, don't go away, because after the next break, we're going to come back with another Secret Origin. So stick around. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen. And I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. We're back. And by we, I mean you, me, and Mr. Michael Bailey, who is here to talk about the secret origin of Guardian and the Newsboy Legion. Welcome back to the show, Michael. Oh, awesome to be here to talk about one of my favorite characters. I'm so happy to have you back. Uh, You know, folks, when I had Michael on last episode to talk about Green Lantern, I was wise enough to sign him to a multi-episode commitment. I can't tell you how exhausting it is when I ask Shag if he'll appear on an upcoming episode, and he says... Well, that wasn't in my original contract. What will you give me? He's the worst. Look, just just to get him to to talk to me at Dragon Con requires like 30 hours of litigation. So I know how you feel. Tweet at FirestormFan, hashtag the worst. 
that. <laughs> anyway, the Guardian. How did you first discover this character? Uh, this is one of my vivid memory. Uh, when I was 12, it was like late summer 1988. I was going on a trip with my dad to take my eldest sister to college, uh, which was across the state. Uh, so obviously, you know, being a six-hour trip, I needed to uh, to have something to read. And one of the things I grabbed at the newsstand was Superman Annual Number 2, which was written by Roger Stern with art by Ron Friends. And it was basically them bringing the Guardian and the Newsboy Legion and a lot of the stuff that I would later find out came up in the Bronze Age into the modern era. And I just liked this character. It was this dude. He had a shield. He was kind of mysterious. He was connected to this government agency. And then he just became part of the books. He was a what I call a supporting hero in the Superman titles. And I followed him all the way through the post-crisis era where eventually he ended up over in Superboy. And then I read in post-Infinite Crisis how James Robinson kind of what I thought reimagined him, but really was just doing what a lot of the stuff was done in the 70s. But I just I just love this character. Just love Jim Harper. And recently... I was reading through some of my New Gods books, and at one point, DC upped the page count of all of its books. So what they did is they just reprinted old Jack Kirby stories from the Golden Age of DC in the back of his New Gods books. And one of them was the first appearance of the Guardian, the Newsboy Legion. Nice. And it was really just like it is in here. I mean, he doesn't really change anything. It was a great story. Nice. I've been thinking about it, and I cannot remember when I discovered this character. Like, my earliest Superman reading was very briefly in the 90s, right around the time of the death of Superman. Because just as a... And we can talk about this at a later date, but I'm one of those people who... who my reading exposure to Superman was colored by The Dark Knight Returns. Like that was one of the first times I read Superman, so I assumed being a uh, being a stupid kid that he was a tool and he wasn't cool, so I wanted nothing to do with him. When they decided to kill him off in the comics in like ninety three, I was like, good, like happy to see him die. Um, so I, I picked up uh, Adventures of Superman five hundred. I got the white poly bagged uh, issue, and I read a. F- few of the issues of around Funeral for a Friend, I was much more interested in Steel. When they introduced him, I thought he had a great design, and I read a couple issues of that before, like during the reign of the Superman. So, I probably saw Guardian around that time in some of those issues, but didn't leave a lasting memory. I I just, I couldn't remember. I I think I must have really found out about this guy just doing kind of like cursory research into Jack Kirby's history uh, and finding him that way. I did read the post infinite crisis when like during what was it during like the world of new krypton was that when yeah Robinson the new krypton storylines yeah mm-hmm. so I, I read it when Robinson was writing those and again I mentioned the last episode not being the greatest fan of James Robinson even though I admit he has done masterful incredible work um, I, I didn't like those stories so that kind of made me not care as much about the character. 
but hopefully, I mean, maybe during our discussion of this episode, you can turn me around on that. But let's get to, let's talk a little bit about the character's publication history. As you mentioned, uh, reading his first appearance, The Guardian was created by the legendary team of artist Jack Kirby and writer Joe Simon, the same creative team who gave us Captain America one year earlier. The Guardian's first appearance was in Star Spangled Comics issue 7, which had an April 1942 cover date, but would have hit newsstands on February 5th that year, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. Star Spangled 7, which was only Simon and Kirby's second work for DC Comics, introduced readers to the Newsboy Legion and their grown-up protector, Jim Harper, also known as The Guardian. The character appeared in the Newsboy Legion strips in about a dozen more issues of Star Spangled Comics over the next four years, and had one guest appearance in a Boy Commando story in Detective Comics 76. After that, he dropped out of publication for a quarter of a century. It was his creator, Jack Kirby, who brought the Guardian back as part of Project Cadmus in the pages of Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen 135. During the 1970s, Guardian popped up in seven issues of Jimmy Olsen and a couple Superman family books. In the 80s, he appeared in All-Star Squadron, because of course he did, starting with All-Star Squadron Annual number 1 and about a dozen issues after that until the Crisis on Infinite Earths. As for the character's post-crisis history, I'm going to leave that to you, Michael, to explain, because I just don't know enough about the character or about Cadmus, and you've covered most, if not all, of that ground in From Crisis to Crisis. Yeah, well, well, Cadmus was a government uh, organization founded by the adult newsboy legion. Gabby and Big Words and Tommy and uh, Scrapper. And I want to stop you right there before you continue, because in my mind that seems that sounds ridiculous on itself even granting the fact that we're talking about characters called the newsboy legion <laughs> and i had like was there any evidence in their early stories that these guys would grow up to be super scientists or that they would create this dna project no but so much of it wasn't the interesting thing about reading the jack kirby jimmy olsen issues which i've done over like the past year or so is I feel like I'm doing a little cultural anthropology on my own Superman reading because I'm seeing what influenced the creators that influenced me, mm-hmm. basically. And there was uh, this alien being known as uh, Sleaze involved. It's it, it, it's a big story that's kind of hard to like you know compartmentalize into like a few sentences. But basically, it's a government organization known as Cadmus, which is really big into cloning. And one of the things that the newsboys did was they found that their old guardian, literally and figuratively, uh, was dying. So they cloned his body and put his personality and all that into the cloned body. So the guardian running around in the Superman books in the post-crisis world is a clone of himself, essentially. So... That's basically the shtick, is that he was head of security at Cadmus. There was a lot of weird who's he, what's us involving Cadmus. Their project director, Westfield, was kind of crooked in many ways. In fact, he tried to steal Superman's body after mm-hmm. uh, during the whole death and, and you know and death and return storyline. Uh, there was this geneticist known as Dabney Donovan 
that was kind of the black sheep of the Cadmus family because he's one of these people that's like genetics. It's it's, it's my playground, and he's crazy. And he so basically they kicked him out, and they thought he died, but he didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he gets involved in creating the clone of Lex Luthor that would eventually pose as his own son. And all of that came into a head during the battle for and fall of Metropolis storyline, where basically all of the clones start getting sick and dying. And turns out Dabney Donovan's involved. And it's just, it was this big story, but mainly it was the fall of Lex Luthor because he goes crazy when he finds out he's dying. And through his machinations, the city of Metropolis is destroyed. So, after that, a lot of those characters went over to Superboy and were a big part of his group because the Superboy running around the post-death universe was actually created at Cadmus. Uh, at first, he was the genetic son of Superman and director Westfield. Uh, later, it was revealed because Jeff Johns that it was actually Superman and Lex Luthor because apparently he thought that was a better idea. It was good on a dramatic level, but... Uh-huh. Yeah, and you know, Cadmus was one of those things that kind of came and went in the Superman storylines, and then during the New Krypton storyline after Infinite Crisis, it was kind of thrown back to where it was in the seventies, uh, which was one of the things that I was kind of disappointed is that I, you know I got to see the Guardian come back, but he wasn't the Guardian that I remembered. He was the Guardian that Jack Kirby and others played with in the seventies, so it didn't feel the same. Uh, and we really haven't seen much of him in the new 52, which I think, which I think is for the best considering what they tried to do to him during new Krypton. So all right, back a few steps, like the whole idea of them, of him dying and then Jim Harper being a clone of himself, like with this, this whole Cadmus project, did it read as dark as it sounds? Because it, as you're explaining it, and I, I'm not just talking about like the '90s Superman stories when we're talking about like Westfield, but like getting back to those those Jack Kirby like Jimmy Olsen stories, that feels like a tonal shift from what we might have gotten in the Golden Age. Am I reading that right? I mean, did, did the uh, it, stories... it wasn't really played as dark because the Newsboys were kind of figures of comedy, anyways, mm-hmm. and the Guardian was kind of such a straightforward superhero type. Uh, they actually tried to bring the Guardian back earlier, but DC wouldn't let them, so that is why you have Gangbuster. Okay, that, okay I was going to get into that later on in the episode. Because but... Gangbuster was supposed to be the new Guardian, mm-hmm. and they wouldn't let him use the name. So they're like, screw it, we'll, we'll call him Gangbuster. And from uh, my reading of 80s and 90s Superman, I always liked Gangbuster more. Gangbuster is one of those characters that, that kind of got screwy after a while. Like, once you get past the whole death and return of Superman, his character arc goes a little wonky. But Jose Delgado was just as he was. Jeff, Jeff and I have often described him bridge between Batman and Superman. He has the, the, he's the ideals of Superman. And what he's trying to do is more Superman-ish, but he's just a guy. So he has to get kind of down and dirty. There's a there's a great scene in one of his really early appearances where he has to intimidate somebody by threatening them with a gas stove, basically. <laughs> and he gets sick afterwards. 
because he doesn't want to do that, but he knew it was the only way he was going to get the information he was going to get. Hmm. So when you started thinking about it, it was rather dark, but because of the general tone of the series, it was never played that way. Like Westfield was sinister, but more of he is the antagonist sinister. Uh, you know, the, the big thing about Cadmus in the post-crisis world, as opposed to the the original Jack Kirby stories, is that in the Jack Kirby story, Superman's like, look at all these wonderful things genetic and cloning is, can do. <laughs> and afterwards, because of the origin of Superman and the, the way they played Krypton, that it was a world that at one point was torn apart because of cloning. He's just like, I don't trust you guys at all. Harper? You keep an eye on these people. If not, I'm bringing this whole house of cards down. Yeah. Juxtaposition, and it's why I liked Guardian, because he was this guy that was very loyal to the organization he is the head of security of, but he also knows there are some bad apples in here, and i got to watch out for that. I hope that answered your question. It did. It did. Thank you. Okay, good. I like it. All right, well, let's get into the origin story here presented. Um, first off, any thoughts on the cover to Secret Origins number 19? Uh, it's a nice, interesting mix of Kirby and, and Anderson. Uh, the Murphy Anderson is obviously a lot more illustrative, where the Kirby section is a little more simplistic. Mm-hmm. But I think it works. I, I, I really do. What I like about it is you can, I mean... Jack Kirby is not an artist who will ever be confused with anybody else. So, no, not at all. So I think that that simple fact, when you look at that, you're like, hey, Jack Kirby did this cover or contributed to this cover. And you, kind of, you have to take a second to look at it. Um, and I know that Roy Thomas tried to get uh, Jack Kirby to, to do this story, and he couldn't for... I, I don't know what, what his commitments or what he was producing at this point in his career. Um, but he, Roy Thomas does say that it was the co-editor, Greg Weissman, who was able to get Kirby to draw this part of the cover. Just a little uh, Guardian figure. It, it's two clashing styles, but it is not bad to look at. No, and I think because they're both great artists and both very pleasing styles. So. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. Well, do you want to tell us the secret origin of Guardian and the Newsboy Legion? Absolutely. It's a timeless tale from the golden age of comic books, uh, with Roy Thomas being the writer-adapter, Arvell Jones being the penciler, the of Jack Kirby's who's who entries. Greg Theakston was the inker, so that was uh, it was nice to get him in on this. Uh, Juliana Frittier. It's the colorist, uh, C-Mech and Vesic letterers, and Greg Weissman was the co-editor. Based on the origin in Star Spangled Comics number seven, and additional materials by Roy Thomas, Adrian Gonzalez, and Jerry Ordway in All-Star Squadron Annual number one. Jim Harper is a rookie cop in Suicide Slum, is having kind of a rough go of it, actually. One night, a group of toughs jump him after he gets, you know, saying toughs, it looks better written than it does said, you know? And this proves to be the last straw. Harper staggers to a nearby costume shop and puts together a disguise topped off with a shield, but he leaves behind two of Captain America's shields and Thor's hammer. I just I just love that. He tracks the toughs down to a pool hall and proceeds to beat the living hell out of them. 
After the fight, he discovers some money used to pay a ransom. When one of the toughs asks who he is, Harper says he's a guardian. Yeah, a guardian to society from the likes of them. After an exciting adventure with the Adam and Wildcat that involved all of them having the same trainer because Roy Thomas, the uh, Guardian believes that he is his time as a mystery man is over. A day or so later, Harper comes across Gabby Tom Scrapper, the so-called newsboy legion who never sing and dance. <sighs> I love newsies. Um... But they're caught when they're trying to steal from a local store. Harper attends their trial and can't help but be reminded of his own youth when him and his pal Leo. It was Nat Milligan that turned him around, training him in boxing and other sports. Years later, Harper found his friend Leo again, only to watch him get gunned down by the mobsters that Leo worked for. The pain of watching his friend die caused Harper to quit his Olympic pursuits and become a cop. Back at the trial, Harper asks the judge to give him custody of the Newsboy Legion, because a single man taking an interest in four young boys wasn't a plot to an episode of Law & Order SVU back in the 40s. <laughs> Tries to talk some sense into the boys, but they run off and try to sell some stuff to Frankie the Fence. Frankie tells them of another job opportunity, and that night, they play decoy to a robbery at a theater. Harper is there, but doesn't open fire to avoid hitting bystanders. As the boys decide to tell off Frankie because they didn't sign up to watch people get shot, Harper becomes the guardian once more. He arrives at Frankie's place just in time to keep the fence from killing the boys. Frankie escapes and Guardian plans on following him. The newsboys want to as well, but he tells them to stay behind. They don't and follow him across the harbor to a lighthouse. There, the guardian is knocked out, and when he comes to, he finds himself face-to-face -face with Chips Carter, which can only mean smuggling. Spotting the newsboys, the Guardian yells out something that seemingly doesn't make any sense, and the boys burst in. The Guardian and the newsboys fight Carter's men as the smuggler goes topside. There he is shot by the Coast Guard, who were summoned by the newsboys under... The next morning, Harper runs into the newsboys on the beat and talks to them about their adventure. They are suspicious when Harper knows details of the crime that weren't in the paper. Between that and the tape on Harper's face, the newsboys wonder if there is more to Jim Harper than it seems. They intend to keep tabs on him, the same as he keeps tabs on them. The end. <laughs> well, Vanzi, a uh, contributor to this uh, podcast and a fan of the show on Facebook, is not going to like hearing this because he's a big fan of the character. He's a big fan of the story in particular. But I did not like this origin. I like the idea of the origin. I like the story points. I don't like the way the story was told. I can kind of see where you're coming from because, you know, Jim Harper becoming the Guardian, that's kind of awesome. You know, he was this rookie cop that people were throwing crap at him and he was just, he was just not having a good time of it. And all these people kept jumped and beaten nearly to death. He into a costume shop puts together a costume, and goes and kicks the crap out of them. I am so totally behind that as an origin. I really am. And maybe it's because the first time I read this story was in Roger Stern's The Death and Life of Superman novel, because mm -hmm. he adapts this almost word to, for word in some cases. But I just, I like the way Thomas told the story. Or is it specific parts of the origin that you don't like? 
let me address the elephant in the room first because there's there's one big hurdle that this this needed to overcome and that is a personal bias from my but I do not like superheroes who deal with law enforcement in their day-to-day job in their everyday job Okay. Um, I don't like cops who then put on a costume and become a vigilante. I thought when Nightwing did it, it was the stupidest idea I've ever heard. Daredevil, I'm okay with it because he's not a public, he's not a prosecuting attorney for the state or for the city. He is a, primarily a defense attorney or, or an independent litigator. So he kind of straddles that line, but I'm okay with that. I mostly have a problem with him because getting back to, okay, he is jumped by these guys. And then he tracks them to a pool hall. He puts on a costume and he goes and kicks their ass. He could have done the same thing as a police officer. He could have gotten back up. The cops could have gone. Unless there is a situation where the, the police are just ill-equipped or, or incapable of dealing with the situation. And if that's the case, then we did not get that backstory. Like Roy Thomas gave us the first page, which gives us a lot of nice language, parallel construction, talking about how the war over there, but there's also a war here at home, but we don't see any of that. And the first page, it's like Jim Harper, he's this rookie cop, but he's also, he must be really effective because these goons want to hurt him. But he's also carefree, and and when they say, you know, how was your day? He's like, oh, this is an interesting town, and he's got a smile on his face. It's this weird, this weird disconnect. So that when he got beat up, and he, and he, he's crawling out of the muck, saying that was the last straw. I'm thinking I needed to, I needed to see a lot more straws before that, <laughs> to understand why he's putting on the costume when he could go find them, put handcuffs on them, or beat them up on, like as a police officer, or get back up to help him do so. So you want more of a motivation for a cop to actually have to put on a costume, is what you're saying. Yes. In this, so- in this particular story, I needed that. And I think we almost get it in page 15, when he he says something like he he's got to put on the costume because he's got to protect the boys because the law will treat them as accomplices um, if they find out that they they were working with Frankie the fence. But then I even have a problem with that because he is the only witness who heard them talking about Frankie the fence. So if he doesn't mention that in his report, there is no connection. So, yeah, I just keep coming back to this idea. I don't know what his motivation was, like why he thinks this costume, I mean, aside from the shield certainly helps, but why is he cloaking his his identity when he already has the protection of the uniform and the shield and the badge? You know, I never really thought about that. Um, It doesn't ruin the character for me, but I can certainly see where you're coming from. I guess maybe because I so associate this character with a different set of circumstances where he's the guardian that maybe I'm not, you know, it just never really occurred to me, but you're absolutely right. Uh, My big problem with this story as it stands is, you know, we have this very, like you said, we have this very flowery opening, you know, it's, it's almost like the opening number to rent, (laughs) You know, whereas, you know, it's 5,470, 600 <laughs> minutes or whatever, yes. you know, and all that. And it, and it leads into this. And from there, we get a pretty straightforward telling. You know, he, he comes in and w- this is one of those places where the 
and the writing don't really come together at all. Mm-hmm. Like you can kind of see that he's got some stains on his uniform in the fourth panel of the third page. But when we see him, it's like, you must've had an interesting day and we see him and he looks fine. In fact, he likes kind of looks like Rick flag. <laughs> I mean, and then, and then he gets, puts on the costume and he goes, beats the Holy hell. Out of him. We get this one mention of the ransom money, which goes nowhere. Absolutely. I hated that. I was like, wait a minute. Why is this like, in there? So are we going to put him like on the trail of kidnappers now? That's kind of interesting, but no, because Roy Thomas is writing this and because he wrote all-star squadron annual number one, we have to have mention of this story that could have just been left out. I'm sorry. We could have just avoided this altogether. We it's, it brings the story to a screeching halt. Yes, it does. To show the thing at the bottom of page eight where they're fighting, you know, Nat Milligan, Mm -hmm. which as Scott and I discussed, we love Wildcat, and I love the Atom, and I love the Guardian. You didn't have to bring them all together like this, you know? It just doesn't make any uh, sense. I do want to know who Butch is. Uh, there's some graffiti on the top of page nine behind the Guardian. <laughs> then we get into the Newsboys, and we really don't get too much of a, of a sense of who they are. No. Before we move into more awkward exposition. And the whole thing with his friend Leo, my problem with this story isn't so much, you know, like the logistical problems with it, is that it is so haphazard in its storytelling. Yeah, it's nonlinear for weird reasons because, like, halfway through, now we've established that he was a cop and now he's becoming a vigilante. And then through these kids, now he's flashing back and telling the story of why he became a cop in the first place. It's like... This isn't necessary, but but for what it's worth, you mentioned the the connection to that All-Star Squadron annual. I thought Roy Thomas told a better Guardian origin in that book in four pages than in in this issue in 20 pages. And then we get, you know, just adventure, which was fine. It was exciting. Yeah, yeah. But the whole thing with the Coast Guard comes out of freaking nowhere. Like, it's just really strange. And how weird... On page 20, that first panel, that dude looks like Jigsaw's older brother. <laughs> and, and for those of you who don't know who I'm talking about, I apologize. I make that reference, and, and you obviously got it. Jigsaw was one of the Frank Castle's enemies, yes. the Punisher. There's, uh, there's a lot of lines on his face. There's a lot of lines on this dude's face. And, you know, that's fine that the Coast Guard gets involved, but isn't a vigilante going to be in their freaking reports? It's also the vigilante, the Guardian goes to the lighthouse, gets captured. The newsboys paint the the lighthouse red, which summons the Coast Guard who shoot down the gangster. So it's his part in the story is negligible. Yeah. Was that in was that part of the original story, the original Jack Kirby, Joe Simon story? Um, God, I read it and now I forget it. And that kind of makes me feel weird. It feels like it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't feel like he's changing too much because this is like you know golden age wacky enough to be that, and you know, and it just ends with them like wah 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 wah. We know that he's the guardian because he, you know, has got some tape on his chin and he knows stuff that he isn't supposed to know. I just, I just think that this story is kind of a mess. Yes, 
And and that is coming from somebody who one likes these characters, and two likes the creators involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, Arvell Jones, when he came on All Star Squadron, I thought it was a breath of fresh air to that title artistically. Uh, it, you know, it was nothing against Jerry Ordway, obviously, but he hadn't been on the book for a while. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, you had like this cast of like fill-ins and stuff. And the book didn't seem to have like a consistent artistic style. Then Arvell Jones shows up and I'm like, oh yeah, here we go. Because his sense, he's, he can draw a great action page. Uh, I like how he does costumes. Unfortunately, we don't get to see a whole lot of that in this because the Guardian's costume is not the later Guardian costume. It's kind of more of a boring version of it, I would say. That's very, very blue. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I mean... I. I hate to say, you know, last time we mentioned that Green Lantern was like the good side of these origins. This is the downside of these origins Mm -hmm. where it just doesn't feel right, where it's just through no fault of anybody. It just doesn't, you know, uh, Shag says this a lot and and this is making me sound like I'm saying Shag's right about something, which could be the furthest from the truth. All the ingredients are there, but Roy Thomas didn't bake the cake properly. Yeah. So that that's my takeaway from this one. And, and I'm going back to that page two when we get an entire page of basically scene setting and time setting of where this place is. And I don't know if this is supposed to be New York or Metropolis, but it's connection to the war and what's being fought over at Pearl Harbor, what's, what's being fought in Japan. It's like George Gershwin should have scored this scene. Right. But it also has nothing to do with the story. It's a waste. Yeah. Of, it's a waste of comics real estate. If you had taken this page and really shown me what Suicide Slum is like, what is a day in the life of Jim Harper before he gets jumped? Like, what is leading it? Because again, it's that line. That's the last straw. That's the first straw that we see. He's, <laughs> he's leaving the police station with a song in his heart. He's singing, I don't want to set the world on fire by the, uh, what is it, the ink spots. It's the... Which was playing, supposedly, the night after Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Uh, so, but that's a whole thing. Yeah, it's just, there's a lot of Roy Thomasisms in this story, and they're not all the good Roy Thomasisms. Right. There are nice flourishes. I love the when he's in the costume shop when we see the two Captain America shields and we see Mjolnir. I actually I really like when he's holding the two shields and he tests them, and that's how he decides that he's going with a gold one. I think that moment is fantastic. Yeah. But it's it's a good comedy beat. Yeah. I, I come back to that. I I hated the insertion of this connection to the the Nat Milligan story. I hated the way this story is just structured. Is like you said, it's a mess. It's all over the place. It's incoherent. I I don't feel like I have a good sense of this character or the Newsboys. I don't know if I'm supposed to like them or not. And and I'm still I'm still hung up on the fact that I I do not know why this guy feels like he is more effective as a costume vigilante than as a police officer, because I don't know what the mask and the shield gives him that he can't do in his normal job. And I, yeah, it's almost like you, you want, you want some extra bit of characterization put in there. Like they've threatened Harper's family Mm -hmm. 
Like if he continues to come after them or if he doesn't play ball, you know, so he's got to take him out, but he can't, it can't be connected to him. I can see then putting on a costume. Yes. Anything or, like that. or even, you know, trying to watch over the kids, mm-hmm. you know, in costume, that kind of makes sense. And, you know, to, to be fair, a lot of the, the, the guardian stories was, you know, was predicated on them getting into some shenanigans and them thinking, you know, like, well, you know, you're the guardian. He's like, oh, no, I'm not the guardian. So right, yeah, right, that kind of thing. So right. so it's just right. I, mean, I was kind of disappointed with this story, which makes me sad. Right. I mean, the the ruffians, the street toughs, which, as you said, that's that's an easier word to read than it is to say. Yeah. Um, the guys who jumped them, they did not look like the sons of wealthy politicians. So I can't imagine the law would have a difficult time putting them in jail <laughs> if he had just gone with an, a squad car to their pool hall. And it's almost like the takeoff of this with Night Owl and the Watchmen makes more sense. Yeah. Because uh, even, you know, his explanation was, uh, I just wanted to fight crime in a costume because it seemed like the thing to do. <laughs> Now, having ranted against this story, which I do not like, I will concede I am charmed to death by the idea of the Guardian and the Newsboy Legion. Mm -hmm. I want to see those stories sort of in in a pocket universe like Captain Marvel, where I don't think Captain Marvel really belongs in the same universe as the as the mainstream DC universe. He can cross over with them, he can have his adventures from time to time, but I really think the charm of Billy Batson and Captain Marvel is of a separate world. And I feel like these guys should be two, almost. You I, know, they're, they're throwbacks to the kind of like the, the R gang mm-hmm. uh, type things. And, and this was a whole genre of comics uh, at the time, mostly done by Jack Kirby and Joe Simon. Where it's just like, we're going to take these young boys, we're going to have this one guy in charge of them, and they're going to go have adventures. Mm-hmm. You know, at least the newsboys never fought Nazis. So, <laughs> no, I mean, the boy commandos like, were there for that. <sighs> you know who one of the boy commandos was later be revealed to be, right? Uh, remind me. I know I, I'm, I'm going to know it as soon as you say it. but Brooklyn was Dan Turpin. That's right. That's right. I knew that. Now that's a retcon. It's a yeah, serious yeah. retcon. But yeah, uh, Dan Turbin turned out to be Dan Turpin right. was revealed, and I think it was in that Guardian mini series that came out the end of '94. Uh, that was part of like they had like Guardians of Metropolis and Metropolis SCU, which Jeffrey and I had serious disagreements about. Uh, on the show that hasn't come out yet, but we've uh, we've we've had a couple arguments about that. One kind of a knife was pulled. It was kind of a it was contentious, but <laughs> everything worked out in the end. That's good to hear. So, recommended readings. Like if if somebody did want to read a good Guardian story, where should they go? I would track down Superman Annual Number Two. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was a good retelling and reinvigorating. You know, if here's the thing, some people don't like it. And it is an acquired taste. But track down the Jack Kirby, Jimmy Olsen issues. They're insane. (laughs) I mean, there's a two-parter where you have Don Rickles and Goody Rickles. Okay? And that's just as batshit insane as it sounds. But I would also, you know, it's going to sound weird. Read that initial 
new Krypton storyline before it went off the rails because as much as I didn't like the tone of the Guardian stories that he was telling, the actual story that brought the Guardian back was actually really good. It was this kind of, you know, it was almost like an apocalypse now with Jimmy Olsen as the Martin Sheen character. I remember it, yeah. Where he's like going into the heart of darkness, essentially. Mm -hmm. But uh, there is also a run of Superboy uh, after issue 50 where Superboy loses his powers and he and Guardian are kind of a, a duo fighting weird stuff in Cadmus. That was really good. Uh, and, and just check out the post-crisis Superman in general around 1986 to 1995. There's a lot of good stuff with the Guardian in there, too. Again, not, I, I've read some of that. I haven't read a lot of it. Like So most of my exposure actually came from that All-Star Squadron annual, which... I'm not a huge fan of that issue. It's not bad, but it's it's kind of all over the place. It, 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 it's it's Thomas on the wrong side of his Thomasisms. Yeah, but I, like I said, in four pages, he gives a more coherent origin for the Guardian mm-hmm. than he did in this issue of Secret Origins. So, absolutely. Thank you very much, Michael. Where can people find you uh, if they want to hear more from you? I, you must have a podcast or something where people can hear more of your thoughts on comics and these characters. Uh, well, there's Views from the Long Box, uh, viewsfromthelongbox.com, where sometimes I'm alone and sometimes I have somebody with me where I talk about all kinds of comics. Uh, if you want to hear a lot about The Guardian in the post-crisis world, go and check back episodes of From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which I co-host with Jeffrey Taylor, uh, where we are looking at the entirety of the post-crisis Superman's comic book adventures and his adventures outside the comics. Uh, I would also recommend Tales of the Justice Society of America over at tutufreaks.com, where we talk about, where Scott Gardner and I talk about All-Star Comics Annual number one uh, and our issues with it. Uh, We talk about Guardian there as well from time to time. Thank you very much, Michael, for being part of the show. It was great to talk to you. Oh, well, thank you for having me on. I was really happy to do it. Secret Origins Episode 18 received Twitter favorites and retweets from Ange, Anthony Durso, Between the Pages, Cabe H, Coffee and Comics Blog, Craig Lives Here, DS and RS, Eli, Firestorm Fan, G.I. Joe Headcast, Greg Arujo, The Hammer Strikes, Isaac Cates, Monster, Joseph Crawford, Keith G. Baker, Michael Bailey, Michael Fife, Paul Scavito, Reading Hicks, Siskoid, Sin, and Trekker Talk. Facebook likes, mentions, and shares came from Alan Middleton, Andy Capellish, Clinton Robison, Comic Reflections, Gotham Shiorin, Gene Hendricks, Gord Tolton, Greg Arujo, Greg Barr, The Hammer Strikes, Igar Glushkin, Jimmy McGlinchey, Joe Crawford, Keith G. Baker, Max Romero, Nicholas Prom, Patrick Connolly, Rob Kelly, Russell Robinson, Sean Engel, Sean Myers, Siskoid, Steve Leach, Tim Wallace, Trevor Owen Williams, and Van Z. On the Facebook page, Chad Bokelman from the Lantern Cast thanked us for the shout-out for his show, as well as his Ragman blog, The Suit of Souls. They're both excellent. They're both worthy of you checking them out. Chad also shared a link for the Lantern Cast episode 137, which goes back a couple years. 
that was an Alan Scott Spotlight episode. So, if you like the original Green Lantern and you want to hear more about him, check out the Lantern Cast episode 137. Gene Hendricks from the Hammer Strikes blog and the Hammer podcast said, I found it amusing to hear the discussion on how mental illness is too complex for a magical talking lantern from space to cure. I agree that it's incredibly complex, but we're talking about an object that allows a man to fly and create whatever he wants from green flame. I'm going to let this one slide. I think what bothered Michael and I about that part of the Green Lantern story was the, I guess, what feels like sort of a dismissive view of mental illness, as if it's any other physiological ailment that could be treated like it's a binary thing, you're healthy or you're not. I think we agree mental illness is a lot more nuanced than that. Ultimately, though, my problem was still the focus on the mental problem rather than a simple terminal illness. Either way, I do get your point. It is a magic wishing ring after all. Van Z posted a couple of panels of Golden Age Green Lantern stories with Alan speaking different versions of the oath. The first image has Alan saying, The light of the Green Lantern pierces darkness and mystery, and its radiance will strike at the heart of evil. Now, I like that. It's a nice descriptor, but it doesn't feel very oath-like. Anyway, go onto the Facebook page and check out some more of those panels of different Green Lantern oaths. Uh, Clinton Robinson said, For those who might want a slightly different way for Alan Scott to fit into the Green Lantern core in post-crisis DC, Gerard Jones penned an issue that gave another account of how Alan's ring and title relate. It also explains, although not necessarily in the best possible fashion, why Alan has a weakness to wood instead of the color yellow. Uh, that issue that Clinton is talking about is Green Lantern issue 19. I forget which volume of Green Lantern that is, but that's the series that started in 1990. Uh, it's a really good issue with art by everyone from Mark Bright, Ed Hannigan, Joe Staten, and Martin O'Dell actually came back and penciled some flashback pages. Track that issue down. I know it's available on Comixology because that's how I read it. And folks... Something I love doing on my podcasts is promoting new shows or new blogs and helping spread the love of this wonderful community. It's a lesson well learned from the Fire and Water podcast, and in that spirit, I'm giving a shout out to Clinton Robinson's new blog. It's called Coffee and Comics. He just started it about a week ago, and he does reviews of the comics he reads while he's reading coffee. Uh, so check out Clinton Robinson's Coffee and Comics reviews at coffeecomicsreading.blogspot.com Okay, onto the Secret Origins WordPress page. Got tons of comments, as always. Uh, you may have noticed that Diablo Frank has been absent for a while, working on his own podcasts, including an epic Martian Manhunter 60th anniversary episode for the Idlehead of Diablo podcast. I strongly encourage all of you to listen to that episode. It was a real labor for Frank, and tell him how much you like it, because if you don't, the deafening silence just seems to confirm DC's apathy toward the character. But anyway, I recorded with Frank a couple of nights ago, and he must have felt compelled to listen to some of the old episodes, because he finally got around to commenting on episode 15, which covered the origins of Dead Man and the Spectre. He talked about his first exposure to Deadman and his lofty expectations before he actually read an issue with the character. 
because after that, his opinion of Dead Man took a downturn, saying, I firmly believe that more characters should have planned obsolescence built into their story, and that after Boston Brand had his season doing a supernatural swipe of the fugitive, some other creators should have revised the Dead Man concept for other incarnations. Instead, this dopey non-starter keeps turning up like a bad penny, and I can't stand him. Do make a CW show with a new dead man who's played by an underwear model named something like Jackson Duke, and it'll hit big. That's interesting, that dead man could be a temporary gig, a sort of rotating title that gets passed on to new people after they fulfill their obligation to Ramakushna, or whatever force brings them back. I kind of like that. A lot, actually. Uh, Then Frank cut to the Spectre portion of the episode. He says, I have to confess that the Spectre segment was the single most annoying of the show to date, seeing as it was an unrelenting slag on one of, if not the, most enjoyable Thomas origins of the run so far, in my personal estimation. I think the term co-adapter is very telling, given Thomas's tendency toward overreaching on credit. My strong suspicion is that Michael T. Gilbert, who was perfectly capable of writing this on his own, either took strong liberties with Thomas's script or did it entirely on his own with Thomas forcing a rewrite over to make it more in line with the original stories. The most Thomas moment was in the horrid opening captions that desperately needed to force the story into a pre-World War II context. Gilbert's Jim Corrigan is a grinning, hard-loving, two-fisted man-mountain, and Gilbert's art is erratic and idiosyncratic and so very much more alive than Thomas's usual Golden Age sterilizations via Silver Age sensibilities. I think we'd all have been happier if Jerry Bingham had drawn this origin and Gilbert had done Captain Marvel, because this tale was the flavor of fun I'd expect from one that seems to repel you boys on the other. As a matter of fact, yeah, I would greatly prefer if the artists swapped stories. Jerry Bingham would have been dynamite on the Spectre, and Gilbert's big pulpy cartoonism would have been awesome for the Shazam tale. I'm imagining his take on Mr. Mind and the Monster Society of Evil right now. Uh, Frank continues... I'm not sure when I was first exposed to the Spectre, probably Crisis, and aside from a good look, love the color scheme, and impressive power levels, I've never cared much for the character. He's a glum sadist in slow-sorted tales where I don't care much about the protagonist, antagonists, or the victims caught in between. On the other hand, this Spectre is the devil-may-care delight with an oversexed gal and hot-blooded gunman on his tail. Not to get too gross, but this ombre is clearly swollen everywhere and swinging it to and fro. The stoolie doesn't sweat so much as froth at the mouth, and kisses come in heart-shaped panels. And of course we've got to devote two full pages to Corrigan in a barrel and a cutaway as it's slowly drowned in cement and his lungs progressively fill with construction material before being dumped in the bay because you're damned right that's how we roll in F yeah town. Compare this to the issues of the Doug Munch series I've read, where Corrigan was just a schmucky Bruce Banner, Peter Parker, private eye, every dud, working a sort of Hulk scenario wary of unleashing the Spectre in times of stress. And I'm not even getting the time I spent writing the sentence back, much less that spent reading the crap. Even the Ostrander Mandrake series, which I think bested Preacher in the audacious ending department, was still largely a joyless dull affair with mere moments here and there of transcendence. That's peachy if it's your bag, but my life's too short and I'd rather read more Michael T. Gilbert, thanks. Though I do have a run of Wrath of the Spectre in the long boxes to sample. I missed comments like those. Alright, moving on to the last episode about the Creeper and Alan Scott. 
Rob Kelly from the Aquaman Shrine and the Fire and Water Podcast family, which includes the Power Records Podcast and the Film and Water Podcasts, all equally terrific, but Power Records definitely being the most equally terrific. Rob said, The Creeper is one of those characters that I think doesn't work long form, but makes for a great guest star. Not everyone can be an above-the-line talent. On a side note, I love that Kenner bothered to make a Creeper figure for the Batman the Animated Series line. I can only imagine how difficult it was to sculpt that Phyllis Diller boa thing he carries around. The Creeper got a couple of really cool action figures. There was the Batman animated version, a DC Universe Classics figure, and a History of the DC Universe Creeper action figure, and they all look great. Uh, And on this line of discussion, Rob's Fire and Water co-host, the Irredeemable Shag, commented later on the thread mentioning there were plans in the 1980s to develop a Creeper action figure for the Super Powers toy line if it had gotten a fourth wave. One of the weirder things about the design is that the red boa thing would have had suction cups allowing Creeper to stick to walls. Getting back to Rob's comment, he said, One of the things I loved about the Secret Origins series was when they allowed for some artistic flights of fancy with the covers. The Kevin Nolan, Adam Strange, Dr. Occult, for example, and this issue too. I remember how much this cover jumped off the shelf at the time. Nathaniel Wayne from Council of Geeks said, The Creeper is weird for me because I was introduced to him through the New Adventures of Batman and Robin cartoon series, and his depiction there immediately made him come across, to me at least, as a knockoff of Freakazoid. Obviously, I know that's not the case, as the Creeper predates the short-lived animated hero by quite a bit, but it's a comparison I've never been able to shake since. Something about a hero who annoys and confronts his villains in equal measure. Maybe it's the fact that Freakazoid does it better, again, in my view at least, that I can't drop the comparison, even though I know which came first. I'm glad you at least briefly touched on the Alan Scott being made gay thing. That whole decision was weird, a sort of odd middle ground. Obviously, Green Lantern is gay is headline-grabbing, but the actual headline of the least popular and least known character to have ever been called Green Lantern is now gay in a new version of the character just feels weird. The whole thing smacks of compromise to me, with one side wanting to create a new gay character and another wanting to reveal a long-standing character to be gay, and we end up with this strange meeting in the middle that I have a hard time wrapping my head around. It's not a bad thing, and the diversity is ultimately a good thing, it's just strange to me. I think changes like this, and I don't know if they're inherently good or bad, but they always seem problematic. And I think, in the case of a character like Alan Scott, so much of his characterization has revolved around his legacy. Not the name Green Lantern, but his lovers and his children. If the New 52 version of Alan Scott is gay, then you're closing the door on telling any new stories with him and Harlequin, or him and Rose and Thorn, or his kids Jade and Obsidian. Is that too disruptive? Are you sacrificing too much of his legacy for this change, for the sake of diversity? On the other hand, those stories of Alan and his kids have been told. Do we need to tell them again in the New 52? Must the new continuity be beholden to what came before? Do we absolutely need Donna Troy and Wally West and their baggage back in the new universe? Wasn't that the point of rebooting all along? So that's what I think is the most strange thing about it. The change raises a lot of questions that I don't know if there are even satisfactory answers to. And even if there were, I'm not convinced DC ever thought to ask those questions in advance. But I could be wrong. 
And then Jeff R. made a comment in response to Nathaniel's, saying, Surely Simon Baz is the least popular and least known character to have ever been called Green Lantern, limiting to those who have starred in the book and been set on Earth. Okay, Jeff does have a point about Simon's unpopularity. I forgot all about him, and I was reading the book when he was introduced. Although Nathaniel did say the least popular Green Lantern at the time, and I think the new 52 Alan Scott may predate Simon Baz, I'm not sure, and I don't care. Uh, But remember earlier when I talked about promoting new blogs and podcasts? Well, Nathaniel's 90s Comics Retrial podcast is finally available. You heard the teaser for that earlier in this episode. You can find the show on iTunes and Stitcher under Council of Geeks. Occasionally, Nathaniel hosts a roundtable discussion about movies, video games, and other geek culture topics. But the new spinoff of that is the 90s Comics Retrial, where he goes through his comics collection from the 90s and judges them on an issue-by-issue basis. So if you're feeling nostalgic or you're feeling a little punchy, check it out because he's reviewing issues of Spider-Man 2099, Spawn, The Max, X-Men and X-Force, pretty much everything that came out with a gatefold holographic cover or polybagged with a trading card. Back to the feedback, Uh, the other Jeff, the one you heard talking about Uncle Sam earlier, Jeff Nettleton, talked about the Creeper and how much he didn't like him which I would have predicted that Jeff wouldn't be a Creeper fan. That doesn't surprise me in the least. Jeff said, Ditko's Randian outlook generally ruins his non-Marvel stuff for me, even when I like the concept, like the question. I find his creations fare better in other hands and seem less insane, like Denny O'Neill and Dennis Cowan's The Question, or his use on JLU. Talking about Green Lantern, Jeff said, Man, Roy's trying to cover a lot of ground with the story. The costumed adventure following the Finding of the Ring just seems a little bit at odds with the rest of the story. It doesn't help that we are back at the New York World's Fair. I like Art Deco as much as the next guy, more even, but Roy seems obsessed with this. Yeah, Michael and I kind of touched on this. We didn't need the second part of the story with Green Lantern fighting at the World's Fair, but Roy Thomas was in love with it, and I'm sure he included the story from Alan Scott's third adventure just so he could revisit his beloved Parasphere. Finally, Jeff said, The early stuff on page 5 looks like it's supposed to be the Arabian Nights stories. I haven't read enough Terry and the Pirates to know if Kniff did a riff on Aladdin or not. He usually kept it realistic. Might be more treasure hunting. On a side note, Mike Grell introduced a legacy of Pat Ryan and the Dragon Lady in his Blackhawk story in Action Comics Weekly, their daughter Red Dragon. Grell basically took the post-war Blackhawk and turned it into Kniff's other masterpiece, Steve Canyon, while mixing in a bit of Terry Lee and Pat Ryan. Got a comment from Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast, which is still doing their annual House of Frankenstein series covering classic horror movies and comics. You need to listen to that. Uh, Chris is also part of the Power Records podcast with Rob Kelly, and they just released an awesome episode covering amazing stories of Spider-Man fighting the Man-Wolf and a selection from Tomb of Dracula. Go listen to that episode right now. Chris said he never got into the Creeper, adding, I think like the original Hawk and Dove, he kind of worked in that moment and that was it. And apparently he didn't work too well then, because he got cancelled pretty quickly. I really dislike Giffen's work in this period. To me, it's just ugly. No offense to Ange, as I thought he did a great job covering it, and I appreciate his enthusiasm for the character. There's characters that I like that I can't really tell you why. It happens. 
Uh, Chris mentioned that he loves the Alan Scott Green Lantern and praised the art of George Freeman. Then he said, I guess I can forgive you, Ryan, for not getting into Robinson's Starman. Just make sure you listen to all the Starman Chronicles episodes of Supermates and call me in the morning. Deal. And Chris ended with, glad to finally hear Mr. Bailey on the show. I could listen to that guy talk about pretty much anything, and I practically have. So it was nice to hear him weigh in on another favorite character that's not Superman or Batman. He's more than that. And thanks for the kind words, Michael. I could only fill in for you when it comes to Superman. You are the E. Nelson Bridwell of the podcasting community. Ange from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary said, I really liked the Green Lantern story as a kid. The whole burn three times thing was fascinating to me, then and now, so I am glad that they included that portion in depth. But I think that I didn't need the last half of this showing the second story. The first was enough of an origin. I think just about everyone agrees with that, Ange, except we're talking about Roy Thomas and the World's Fair. Do you really expect him to not force a personal, trivial bit of his own fandom at the expense of a story? We got a comment from Harlan Freilicher. I think his first comment on the site. If not, I apologize. Harlan echoed the views of pretty much everyone except for Ange on the Creeper being an odd fit and really enjoying the Green Lantern discussion. He says, I have a couple of trivial nitpicks to throw in. The fact that there are only a couple should be taken as an indication that the rest of this episode was more or less flawless from this listener's perspective. Well, usually even the tiniest amount of criticism will get your comment deleted and I'll never speak of you again. But since you phrased it so eloquently, I'll let it slide this time. Harlan says, first and foremost, just because it came up twice on the episode, Alan Scott was married to Rose and Thorn when they conceived Jade and Obsidian. The story was told in the Infinity Incorporated annual that is due to be covered soon on Tales from the JSA after that happy day when the podcast returns. Rose falls in love with Green Lantern, discovers his secret identity, adopts a new identity of her own in order to pursue him, and the two get married and consummate the union in a glowing green bubble. The thorn persona awakens, and Rose is forced to fake her own fiery death, only to discover that she's pregnant with twins. There's more, but my head is spinning just recounting that much. Mine too now. Second, a note on the Green Lantern Corps oaths, the idea that Hal's oath is the standard oath is actually an invention of the Jeff Johns era. In the Silver and Bronze Age, most alien Green Lanterns had their own oaths. It was stated that about a hundred or so of them had copied Hal's, presumably to explain away those instances where the writer had slipped and put in the In Brightest Day words into an alien mouth. Salak used the Alan Scott oath from his very first appearance, long before the Green Lantern title switched to Green Lantern Corps. Very cool info, Harlan. Thank you for that. Michael Chiaroscuro said, Were these two characters teamed up for their color schemes? Because there's a lot of crossover there. Stunning cover by Sienkiewicz, and I am a huge fan of his. It's nowhere near my favorite of his work, but it's still stunning and clearly was enough to make me pick this up off the racks back in the day. This here issue is the first of the series I ever bought. Michael voiced an opinion that a couple of people shared that his favorite Creeper stories were from Batman the Animated Series or the New Adventures of Batman and Robin. He did express at least one contrary opinion, though, saying, I really loved Giffen's art and layouts here. I remember being fascinated by the shift in his art style when I was a kid and really enjoying his new style quite a bit. Back to majority opinions, Michael liked the Alan Scott story, but thought that it went on too long and could have been cut shorter. Yep, we're all on the same page there. 
Michael ended his comments with, My life's been hectic and busy lately, but I've enjoyed finding some moments to tune into your show. It's always a blast. Your guests are universally good, too. Keep up the good work. And I think I might have said this last time he was on, but I don't remember. Either way, Ange is a perfect guest. He articulates some great points on comics and characters that show how thoughtfully he considers everything when he's reviewing stories like this. Bring him back often. You know... Ange is already a doctor, and a husband and father, and a good friend. Now he's a perfect podcast guest? I'm thinking Dr. Ange might be flying a little too close to the sun right now. If any of my fellow podcasters are listening, meet me in the secret conference room. We need to figure out what to do about this guy. Moving on, the irredeemable shag, who I am not allowed to make fun of on the listener feedback section for the rest of the month. If you want to know why, check out the latest episode of my Black Canary podcast, Flowers and Fishnets. Shag said, when it comes to favorite characters, Ange is certainly a glutton for punishment. Reactron, Hyathis, and now Creeper? Is Ange also a fan of Nodar and the Hawkman foe Darkwing? Hey, I defended Darkwing on the Who's Who Update 87 podcast. Well, not his costume or the story with him, but the other part of him. Uh, Moving on. Shag declares, I'm just going to put it out there, Creeper isn't that great a character and wouldn't still be around today if he hadn't been created by Steve Ditko. There, I said it. Feel free to argue the point, but I believe it to be true. If a different creator had come up with a Creeper, he'd just have been a forgotten nobody from the Silver Age. Look at the amount of indifference in the comments above. Other than Ange's fandom, and even that is somewhat intangible, nobody loves this character. Why does DC keep trying to make this character work? Seems to me it's the popularity of Steve Ditko. I like the idea of Jack Ryder, sensationalist reporter. It's just the creeper that really lacks a home in the DC universe. I think there's some merit to that, yeah. Uh, He talks about first discovering the creeper in an anthology book and says, In my young mind, I made immediate connections between creeper and the Joker, based solely on similarities in name and look. I thought creeper was some derivative of the Joker, like Batgirl is connected to Batman, or perhaps the Earth 2 version of the Joker. In hindsight, that might have been more interesting. Wow, what if he was some demented, demonic derivative of the Joker? What if... What if Creeper was carnage to Joker's venom? Let that stew in your mind place for a minute. Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, Great show, but saying something is the best Creeper story you've read is not high recommendation. I rather liked Green Lantern 100, connecting the Golden and Silver Age Green Lanterns via the Starheart, and while I love Alan's original bizarre look, the Sentinel tweak was a terrific update, sleek and undoubtedly honoring the original. I like the Sentinel costume design, but I think it's really missing the purple cape. Uh, I think that clash is important, so his green energy isn't drowned out by mostly green costume. I love Alan Scott's purple cape. I love the whole thing. It's, it's like when they redesign Robin's costume and take out the green or the yellow. You're missing part of what makes the look iconic. Uh, and the last comment comes from Paul Hicks from the Waiting for Doom podcast, who continues to listen to the show despite the fact that we've already covered the Doom Patrol's origin. I I don't understand why that is. But whatever. Paul writes, Great work pulling these episodes together and making substantial, entertaining, flowing, and informative content on a weekly basis. As half of a podcasting team, I have a bit of an idea how much work you're doing. It's greatly appreciated. Thank you, Paul. That's very nice. And it's a good sentiment on which to end the episode. 
I want to thank Michael Bailey for coming back and Jeff Nettleton for making his podcast debut here on Secret Origins Podcast. It was great talking with them both. As ever, it's great hearing from you, the listeners, too. Your comments, questions, concerns, even your gripes and playful teasing. It's all good. I don't want to set the world on fire. Feedback can be left at secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01 or at blackcanaryfan or the username countdruncula. You can also email your feedback to blackcanaryfan at gmail.com and please let me know if the message is private and you don't want it read on a future episode. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics. The views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. I just want to be the one you love. And with your admission that you feel the same, I'll have reached the goal I'm dreaming of, believe me, I don't want to set the world on fire, I just want to start a flame in your You got to love the newsboys. You got the smart kid. You got the good looking kid. You got the kid that talks too much. And then you got Scrapper, who I just love Scrapper. And just like this guy that's just got this hair trigger temper that gets him into so much trouble. So, yeah, I love these guys.